Matthew chapter 3. We'll be there in just a moment. Perhaps there is no um, more well-known sermon than our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. In part or in whole, we probably know um, a lot about our Lord's teachings that he gave in what has become known as the Sermon on the Mount. If we think about there, the beginning of chapter 5, with the Beatitudes. And we have probably heard those if we've been in church all of our lives. We've probably heard those all of our lives. Well, it's very important in understanding um, that um, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is really going to set forth the foundation for his teaching that will really um, be that foundation for the rest of his ministry. There's so much said here in this sermon um, that undergirds really all the rest of our Lord's teachings. It establishes the principles of what it means to be a Christian. And so it's a very, very important um, discourse and worthy of our attention. And so tonight what I'd like to do is to begin a series um, about this great sermon. And we'll spend some time over the coming weeks um, looking at this uh, discourse in, in more detail. We'll divide it up, and we're going to look at that a little bit here tonight to kind of set the stage for what we'll be looking at. Um, see what our Lord has to say about these many different subjects that he talks about throughout. Um, and uh, we'll see what those things that he's teaching there have to offer to his immediate audience. And then, of course, what it has to offer for us these so 2,000-something years later. It still rings true. Uh, it still rings with authority, uh, as it had and as it did when Jesus delivered it. And we have much to gain from, from a study of the Sermon on the Mount. So tonight I wanted to spend um, a little bit of time setting the stage, talking a little bit about the circumstances that led up to this, and, um, and then outlining a little bit, um, setting forth the structure in which Jesus is going to deliver this sermon. Um, and so while the teachings are varied and wide-ranging, uh, there is a foundation that undergirds the whole sermon, and that is the idea of the kingdom of heaven. And so for the title for this series of lessons is this, the Sermon on the Mount, Lessons on the Kingdom of Heaven. So let's begin by looking at what John uh, proclaims about our coming Lord. So if you're there in Matthew chapter 3, Look with me in verses 1 through 3. It says, Now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of the one who cried in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Remember what um, 
John's duty was, what John's assignment was. He was to go and set forth and prepare the way for the coming Lord. And as he's doing that, we read here in Matthew's account what John is saying as he's doing that. And what he is saying is, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent implies that something needs to change. There's a change that needs to take place. And that's what repenting is all about, turning away and going in the opposite direction. So what John is proclaiming here is there has to be a change made. And why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Lord is on the earth. And he's going to bring the teachings. He's going to fulfill the law. And he's going to usher in his own law, the law of Christ. So this is what John is proclaiming as he is set forth in his ministry. And Jesus is going to come along shortly behind him and is going to proclaim really the same thing. I want to start, though, by looking in Luke's uh, accounting over in Luke 4. <clears throat> Luke 4 and Matthew 4 are, are pretty much the same time period. There's just a little bit of um, difference in the details that each one of these gospel writers provides. So if we look here in Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 14, it says, and this is after the Lord has been tempted in the wilderness by the devil. Verse 14, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues, and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the release of the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Verse 20, And he closed the book, and gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I love this passage. I love what it says. Um, just picture the scene, if you will, of what's taking place. Jesus goes into the synagogue. Um, he's asked to, to stand up and read, and he's handed the book of Isaiah, the scroll of Isaiah, if you will. He turns there, and this is what he reads about proclaiming the favorable year of the Lord. And then he sat down, and he says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. The prophecies of Isaiah, what he was prophesying all those many years before, has come to pass. And now Jesus is on the earth. And he's going to do these things. He's going to uh, proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and set those who are downtrodden. Um, he's going to do all those things. And he's going to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah. Let's go back now to Matthew 4. Matthew 4. 
Matthew 4, again, like I said, this is, these are accounts are pretty close in time. Matthew 4, beginning of verse 12. Now, when he heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is uh, by the sea in the region of Zebulon and Naphtali. So we kind of see that these events are taking place most probably after what we just read. He was in Nazareth, he left there, and he's come to Galilee, come to Capernaum. Verse 14, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and to those who were sitting in the land of shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And then notice verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. More prophecy of Isaiah is quoted here. There's that prophecy of Isaiah quoted back there with John and his ministry. All the prophecy about our Lord is starting to come true. So as John was was preaching in the wilderness, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's Jesus. He's been tempted by the devil. He's begun his ministry now. He's been in the synagogue at Nazareth, and he's read that scripture there from from Isaiah and said that now this this is proclaimed, this is in your hearing, you're, you're seeing it. Now as his ministry is continuing, Matthew records for us, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You look down at verse 23 of Matthew 4. It says, and Jesus was going all about Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. So there's that prophecy being fulfilled. Healing people, healing those who are sick going about teaching and preaching. What's he preaching? Repent, for the kingdom of of heaven is at hand. And also look over in chapter 5 and verse 3. As he begins his his sermon here, what will become known as the Sermon on the Mount, look how he begins it. Verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we can understand why we can talk about and give a theme for the Sermon on the Mount being related to the kingdom of heaven. This is what John was proclaiming. This is what our Lord was proclaiming. And as he begins his his, uh, sermon here, the very first things he talks about are the kingdom of heaven. If we wanted to try to, for our introductory purposes, um, talk about how we might outline this sermon. One way we can do that um, is using this idea of the kingdom, aspects of the kingdom. So we can start by talking about the citizens of the kingdom. There in chapter 5, as he begins, and we mentioned there the Beatitudes. Blessed are those poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, 
for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those. Blessed are these. Blessed are the ones. These are blessed. This is where we get this term, the the Beatitudes. The uh, Beatitude is uh, from a Latin word that means happy or blessed. I'm always confused about that word uh, coming along. Sounds like something added on to attitude, doesn't it? A Beatitude. But what it really is talking about is being happy, being blessed. So our Lord uses that uh, in each one of these. Blessed is he. And this is where we get this, the Beatitudes. And understand that this is not what the world would define as happy. If the word means happy or blessed, our Lord says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Does the world think that those who are poor in spirit should be happy? Blessed are those who mourn. The gentle or the meek. The world doesn't usually talk about meekness as being a positive thing. Usually it's quite the opposite, isn't it? Blessed are those who hunger, thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. These are not what the world would, would deem as ways to be happy in this world. But we understand from Scripture that His ways are not our ways. And so we learn a lot from what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom. And this is the first section, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. And it describes the character that each citizen of the kingdom should have. We need to look at those Beatitudes and see, does that describe us? Do we thirst for hunger and righteousness? This talks about the, the characteristics of the citizens of the kingdom. And one important thing to understand about it is that we are to be different from those in the world. Down in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But as the salt become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? Verse 14, you are the light of the world. 16, let your light shine before men. There's a difference that we as children of God need to display. We need to be different from the world. So when we talk about these things run contrary to what the world might think about as being happy or being blessed, so be it. This is what our Lord says. And this is how we are to be happy in this world, in this life, and understand that we are indeed to be different. Salt of the earth, light of the world, that's what we are to be. So the first section is really talking about the citizens of the kingdom. Second section talks about the righteousness within the kingdom. And this picks up here in chapter 5 and verse 17 and runs through really all the way through chapter 7, all the way up to verse 12. Jesus deals with righteousness. In verse 17, it says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. It's another sticking point with a lot of people in in their understanding of the old law and the new law. 
the law of Christ. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to complete it. And much of his teaching right here in chapter 5 and chapter 6 speaks to that. It speaks about how he completes the teachings and righteousness that the old law began. If you know this well, and you probably do, how Jesus uses the old law to talk about the lead into the law of Christ, his law. The example is murder. We can look at that one. Verse 21, you have heard that uh, from the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Murder is wrong. The old law taught that. But so is the hate and the scorn that leads to murder. So see, in Jesus' teaching, he's, he's completing the, the thoughts of the old law and letting the, his audience here know that the old law established this, and, and here's the why. Here's God's reasoning behind it. Yes, it's wrong to commit murder, but those thoughts, those feelings that you hold in your heart that lead up to murder, you need to take a close look at those too. That's what's meant by fulfilling the law. Completing those teaches and righteousness that the old law began. And there's another thing to understand and, and see um, that our Lord brings out here is the righteousness that needs to be practiced needs to be practiced for self and not for those who might be looking on. If you look there in chapter 6, it says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward for your Father who is in heaven. It goes on to talk about how you might give alms, how you would pray. These things, this practice in righteousness is to be done for for self, not for show. So much of what had gone on and what the pharisaical law had evolved into was lots of pomp and circumstance. Lots of show, lots of things done for the manner of being seen, the, the phylacteries that, that hung down, you know, all these things that they did to be noticed by men. And Jesus is saying, you need to, to beware of that. You need to practice your righteousness for yourself, not to be seen by others. He goes on to tell them how to pray. He goes on to talk about fasting. If you're going to fast, you need to do it in such a way that people don't know you're fasting. You're just doing it because that's right, not to be seen of others. The last section in a very broad outline of the Sermon on the Mount, is the plea to enter the kingdom. So Jesus has talked about the citizens of the kingdom. He's talking about the righteousness that those of the kingdom need to practice in contrast to the righteousness of the Pharisees. By the way, if you look back in verse 20, of chapter 5, it says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. There's the contrast that's being drawn. 
Righteousness that you need to practice under the law of Christ needs to exceed that of the Pharisees. Otherwise, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. So the groundwork is laid. So it comes to chapter 7 and verse 13, and there's a plea to enter the kingdom. And look how that starts. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Even in his teaching and, and the wanting for um, all mankind to be saved, there's the realization that only a few will. Enter by the narrow gate. It also tells us in what he goes on to talk about um, is that only those who practice righteousness will enter the kingdom of heaven. This came up in the sermon this morning, coming down to verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter the kingdom. Only those who practice righteousness will enter. And as, we, as I mentioned in the sermon this morning, that's contrary to what the world might think. The world thinks that, well, we're all going to go to heaven, we're just taking different roads to get there. Jesus says the, road is, the way is narrow that leads to life. And only a few people who will find it. And he concludes the, the lesson here by talking about the foundations. Verse 24 of chapter 7. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to the wise man who built his house upon the rock. He goes on to contrast that about the man who builds his house upon the sand and how it collapsed. The one who builds upon the rock, that's the house that stays standing. So there's a foundation being laid here. Jesus is laying the foundation for the gospel teachings that would follow. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and what and acts upon them. You know, there's a duty to being a Christian. There's work that needs to be done. Things we have to do. And that's the foundation that Jesus is laying. We have our part in building on that foundation. Closing out tonight, and I just had just a few thoughts to share with you as we get these lessons underway. But I wanted to talk to you about uh, this distinction about Jesus' teaching. You look there in verse 28 of Matthew 7. It says, And the result was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who has authority and not as their scribes. I have a typo on my, on my slide there. It should be verses 28 and 29. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. They recognized the difference in Jesus' teaching. They recognized that this man speaks from, from authority. Not like the scribes. You know, the scribes duty was to make copies of the old law, of the Old Testament. 
That's what they were charged to do. They recognize that there's a difference here. As the Lord says, he came to fulfill the law. He's taking the law, the law of Moses, the prophets, and he's expanding upon it. He's fulfilling it. He's telling us the, the underlying principles that God wanted them to know all along. And Jesus is explaining it. They recognize there's a difference. In Nazareth, we, he had that account that we read a minute ago where he stood up and, and um, spoke in the synagogue. You know what their reaction was? They were ready to throw him off a cliff. Why do you think that was? Because they recognized there's a difference. That this is a man who speaks from authority. Luke will go on to, to say exactly that. And this distinction um, will, will prove to be both powerful as well as controversial. Right here, Jesus has already run afoul of those in Nazareth who want to throw him off a cliff. And that's going to follow him throughout his ministry. Why? Because of the things that he was saying. The words that he was speaking. The teachings that he was bringing. They were powerful, yes. They were controversial as well. Because they were convicting men of their sins. They were convicting the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees of the hypocrisy that they were engaged in. So here's a man who speaks from authority. We can see how the Sermon on the Mount sets the tone for the Lord's ministry. These are the kinds of things he's going to talk about. He's going to talk about what it means to be a citizen in the kingdom. Certain character that you should have as a child of God. He's going to talk about righteousness. If your righteousness does not exceed that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Righteousness is a part of being a child of God. And it has to be practiced in the right way. Not to be seen of men, but to be practiced in the right way. And this is the foundation for the gospel message. Citizenry in the kingdom. Righteousness that needs to be practiced. And that plea to enter into the kingdom. Enter by the narrow gate. There's a plea and most every sermon you hear has one or two or all of these components. Preachers talk about what it means, the character that a child of God needs to have, that he needs to be practicing righteousness, that the things he's doing needs to be in accordance with God's will. And then there's the plea. There's a plea to become a part of the kingdom. Jesus is setting the foundation for the gospel message, giving us preachers a good outline to follow in the sermons that we deliver on Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings. And that message comes down to what, we're, what we started at. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom is at hand. So as we talk about in the coming weeks, in more detail about this great sermon, there's always that plea that's going to come through that you need to change. That you need to be a part of the kingdom. 
if you're not already. And if as a child of God, you need to remember that these things are always good to come back to and make sure that you're practicing these things in the correct way. Make sure that you're practicing the righteousness. Not that of the Pharisees, the scribes, but more than that. Not to be seen by them, not to be seen of man, but to be seen by God and to be pleasing to him. So the plea continues. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. John came proclaiming that. Making the way, making the path for the Lord. When our Lord begins his ministry, he says the very same thing. And then goes on to deliver this beautiful sermon. So we'll spend the next several weeks looking at it in more detail. Seeing what we can gain from it as his children. If you're not a child of God and you're of age, of accountable age, I would encourage you to become one. If as a child of God you indeed aren't living as a citizen of the kingdom should, not practicing the righteousness that you should as a child of God, I would encourage you to make that right as well. Whatever your needs might be, you can let them be known by coming forward as we stand and sing to encourage you.